Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is Day 10. Today we will be reading Book 3, Chapters 8-12 through 12 in the Ascension edition of the book. If you'd like to hear some of our conversations on other subjects, follow up with us and three of our brother priests on the podcast God's Planning. There you'll find weekly episodes on a variety of Catholic themes with the occasional guest, scriptural meditations, and special series. You can find God's Planning with any podcast app on YouTube and at godsplanning.org. All right. Well, before we get into the reading then, a quick look at what we're covering today. So here at the end of book three are a few things that Augustine talks about and introduces us to. So something that he brings up is the question of love of God and the role of the love of God or the place or the capacity with which we are to love God. He also talks about the sort of origins of sin. He calls them the heads of iniquity, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of the spirit. So we'll look at that. Of course, there's a lot of conversation about sin because the confessions are about conversion, so moving from sin to holiness. And then book three ends, uh, it ends today in our reading, uh, but it ends with bringing in St. Monica yet again, uh, the recurring mother of St. Augustine. And um, St. Augustine recounts a dream that St. Monica had about her son and about her son's conversion. So we're, we're going to take a dive into that too. Before we do, uh, let's get started with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 8 Can it at any time or place be unjust to love God with all one's heart, and all of one's soul, and all of one's mind, and to love one's neighbor as oneself? Therefore, everywhere and at all times, foul offenses that are contrary to nature should be detested and punished, such as those that were committed by the men of Sodom. If all nations were to commit them, they should all stand guilty of the same crime, by God's law, which did not make men so that they might abuse one another in this way. For even that very society that should be shared between God and us is violated, when that same nature of which he is the author is polluted by the perversity of lust." But those actions that are offenses against the customs of men are to be avoided in accord with the customs that prevail in various forms, so that something agreed upon and confirmed by the custom or law of any city or nation may not be violated at the lawless pleasure of any, whether native or foreigner. For any part that is not in harmony with the whole of which it is a member is offensive. But whenever God commands something to be done, against the customs or agreement of any people, even though it were never done by them before, it must be done. 
And if it had been set aside, it is to be restored. And if it were never ordained, it now must be ordained. For if it is lawful for a king in his own kingdom to command something that neither he nor anyone before him had commanded, so that obedience to him cannot be contrary to the civic life of society, nay, it would even be contrary to it if he were not obeyed, for obedience to princes is something belonging to the general agreement of societies, then how much more unhesitatingly ought we to obey God and all that he commands, he who is ruler of all his creatures? For just as amid the powers of human society a greater authority is obeyed in preference to a lesser one, so too must God be obeyed over all. So too, in acts of violence, there is a desire to hurt, whether by reproach or injury, for many reasons, either for revenge, as one enemy does to another, or for some profit belonging to another, as a robber does to a traveler, or to avoid some evil, as one does to someone whom he fears, or through envy, as someone less fortunate does to someone more so, or as someone who has some success in anything does to someone whom he fears might become equal to him, or as one grieves at, or merely takes pleasure in, the pain of someone else, as spectators do when watching gladiators, or deriders and mockers feel towards each other. These are the heads of iniquity, which spring from the lust of the flesh, the eye, or the pride of life, either alone or in twos or all three together. And thus do men live in iniquity against the three and seven, that ten-stringed harp, your ten commandments, O God, most high and most sweet. But what foul offenses can there be against you, who yourself cannot be defiled? Or what acts of violence can be perpetrated against you who cannot be harmed? But you avenge what men commit against themselves, seeing also that when they sin against you, they act wickedly against their own souls, and iniquity lies to itself, by corrupting and perverting their nature, which you have created and ordained, or by immoderate use of things that are permitted, or by burning for things that are not permitted, even to the point of desiring that which is against nature. Or they are found guilty, raging with heart and tongue against you, kicking against the goads. Or when bursting the limits of human society, they boldly take joy in self-willed combinations and divisions, all based on whatever they might gain or how they have been subject to offense. And these things are done when you, O fountain of life, who are the only and true creator and governor of the universe, are forsaken, and any one false thing is selected out of this universe in love. So then by humble devotion we return to you, and you cleanse us from our evil habits, showing mercy to the sins of those who confess, hearing the groaning of the prisoners, and loosening from our limbs the chains that we have fashioned for ourselves, so long as we do not lift up against you the horns of an unreal freedom, suffering the loss of all by coveting more, by loving our own private good more than you, the good of all. Chapter 9 But amid such foul and violent offenses and so many iniquities are numbered the sins of men who are on the whole making progress. And in accord with the rule of perfection, these sins are rebuked by those who judge rightly, though the persons in question are commended in the hope of future fruit, like the green blade of growing corn. And there are some that, although they resemble foul and violent offenses, are in fact not sins, for they offend neither you, our Lord God, nor human society. Namely, when these fitting for a given period are obtained for the service of life, though we do not know whether this was done because of greedy cravings, or likewise when things are punished by an established authority for the sake of correction, though we do not know whether this was done out of one's craving to harm another. 
Thus, many actions that are disapproved in men's sight are approved by your testimony, and many that are praised by men are, with you as witness, condemned. For the appearance of the action, the mind of the person doing it, and the needs of the period all vary in different ways. But when you all of a sudden command some unusual and unforeseen thing, indeed, even though you once upon a time had forbidden it, and still for the time hide the reason for your command, and it happens to be contrary to the ordinance of some society of men, who doubts that it is to be done, given that a just society of men is precisely the one that serves you? But blessed are they who know your commands, for all things were done by your servants either to show forth something needed at that time, or to foretell the things that were to come. Chapter 10. But I was unaware of these things, and therefore scoffed at your holy servants and prophets. And what did I gain by scoffing at them except to be scoffed at by you, as I was being drawn unknowingly and step by step toward follies, like believing that a fig tree wept when it was plucked, and that the tree that was its mother shed milky tears? Nonetheless, that fig, plucked by someone else's guilty hand, some Manichaean saint had eaten, mixing it with his own digestion so that he might breathe out angels from it, nay, so that particles of divinity should burst forth at every moan or groan in his prayer, particles of the Most High and True God, who had been bound up within that fig until the day when they were at last set free by the teeth or belly of some elect saint. And here, in my miserable state, I believe that more mercy was to be shown to fruits of the earth than to men, for whose sake the former were created. If anyone who was not a Manichaean would ask for any morsel of such food, it would have seemed to me that such fruit were condemned to capital punishment if it were given to him to eat. Chapter 11 Yet you sent your hand from above, and drew my soul out of that profound darkness, while my mother, your faithful servant, wept to you on my behalf, shedding more tears than mothers do at the bodily death of their children. For through the faith and spirit that she received from you, she discerned how dead I was, and you heard her, O Lord. You heard her and did not scorn her tears as they streamed downward, watering the ground under her eyes where she prayed. Yes, you heard her. For what else could have been the source of the dream that comforted her, leading her to come and live with me, sharing the same table, something she had heretofore refused to do because she abhorred and detested my blaspheming errors? In that dream, she saw herself standing upon a wooden rule with a beaming youth coming toward her, cheerful and smiling, while she stood there weeping and filled with grief. But he asked, in order to instruct as is customary in dreams, not to be instructed, why she was filled with grief and daily shed such tears. And she answered that she was bewailing my perdition. And he bade her to rest content, telling her to behold and observe, where you are, there also am I. And when she looked, she saw me standing by her on the same rule. What was the source of this, if not the fact that you heard the stirrings of her heart? Oh, how good and omnipotent are you, who care for each of us as though you cared only for each person himself and for all as though they were but one. And from whom but you came her reply to me when after she recounted the dream, I distorted her message, telling her it meant that she should not despair of one day coming to be as I am now, to which she immediately and without hesitation replied, No, for you were not the one who was told where he is, there too you will be, but where you are, he too is. 
I confess to you, O Lord, that to the best of my recollection, and I have often spoken about this, your answer through my waking mother that she was not perplexed by the plausibility of my false interpretation and so quickly saw what was to be seen, even then moved me more than the dream, which itself was a joy to the holy woman and consolation of her present anguish, for casting so far in advance something that would be fulfilled so many years later. Indeed, nearly nine years passed while I wallowed in the mire of that deep pit and the darkness of falsehood, often striving to rise from it, all the while being cast down even more grievously into it. And all throughout this time, that chaste, godly, and sober widow, such as you love, now more cheered with hope, though in no way ceasing in her weeping and mourning, did not at all cease in her continual devotions to bewail to you regarding me. And her prayers entered into your presence. Nonetheless, you allowed me to be continually ensnared in that darkness. Chapter 12 In the meanwhile, you gave her another answer which I now call to mind. However, in my haste to press on to those things which I feel to be more pressing to confess to you, I find myself passing over many things, and there are also many that I do not recall. But you gave her another answer through a priest of yours, a certain bishop, brought up in your church and full of knowledge of your scriptures. She beseeched him to deign to converse with me so that he might refute my errors, strip me of my evil opinions, and teach me good things, for this was something that he would regularly do when he found people who were ready to receive such teaching. However, he refused to do so, a choice which I have thereafter perceived to have been wise, for he told her that I was still then unteachable, given how I was puffed up with the novelty of that heresy, and had already perplexed various unskilled debaters with my quibbling questions, as she herself had told him. But, he said, leave him be for a while and only pray to God for him. By his own reading, he will himself discover what an error that is and how great his impiety is. He added how, when he was younger, he himself had been handed over to the Manichaeans by his mother, who had been seduced by them. And he had himself not only read their books, but even had frequently copied out almost all of them, leading him to see, without any argument or proof from anyone else, how much that sect needed to be fled from. And he indeed did just that. When he had said this, she still was not satisfied, urging him all the more, begging and pleading with many tears that he would come and see me so that he might discuss these teachings with me. Somewhat displeased with her for this, he said to her, Go on your way, and may God bless you, for it is impossible that the son of such tears should perish. And, as she often mentioned in her conversations with me, she took this answer as though the words had sounded out from heaven itself. All right. Well, let's start off, Father Gregory, with a conversation about love and love of God. So in in this section, Augustine makes mention of the fact that it is just or righteous or good to love God always and everywhere. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what he's what he's talking about. And I don't think we've really had much of a reflection on on charity and how that uh, the virtue of charity sort of works and moves and what it does. And ultimately, it's charity, it's love that prompted God to create and and to recreate and his grace uh, poured out on the cross for us. And it's also God's charity, ultimately, that moves a sinner to conversion um, here, St. Augustine, and here probably us as well. So why don't we talk about charity, the theological virtue of charity for, for a minute? Yes, so uh, St. Augustine will talk about it here. He talks about it in a variety of places in his works. Uh, Maybe 
Some of the more famous passages come up in his Enchiridion and also in his homilies on the first letter of St. John. But St. Augustine will find him in this passage saying that, um, you know, like love is the standard according to which all of Christian life is judged. It's the standard according to which we read sacred scripture because everything that we find therein has to comport itself with love. And the reason for which isn't because he's a hippie and all you need is love, uh, insert the appropriate you know, musical line. But um, no, it's because he's, he's a good thinker and he knows that as the end is, so the means are. All right, so if we're living for heaven, how is heaven to be characterized? Well, you know, faith, hope, and love. Well, faith doesn't remain in heaven because we see God. We don't need to believe because we see. Hope doesn't remain in heaven because we possess God, so we don't need to hope for what we possess. But but love will abide, you know. Love will be perfected in heaven, charity that is, uh, because that's the very substance of it. That's the very substance of Christian perfection. That's like the very atmosphere, as it were, of our you know heavenly reality or of our heavenly homeland uh, because it's for communion that we are made and it's in, in cultivating a life of communion here on earth that we hope to attain to the perfect communion which lies in store. And so St. Augustine, given that this is our end as Christians, he knows that it's, it's the type of thing that should characterize the whole of our life's journey on the way to the end. Because as Christians, we don't go in for some like silly notion like delayed gratification, you know, like do all kinds of crazy and unrelated things here on earth, which will involve, you know, Herculean feats and very difficult disciplines and death-defying marvels. And then in heaven, you can just relax, you know. It's like, no, no, there's, there's got to be an organic connection between how we live here and how we live there. And he thinks that that connection can be found in love. Yeah, and the the nature of charity of love is that it is a sort of it's not a sort of thing. It's an all consuming reality. You know, it is a, it's an outpouring of self to the other, and because of its sort of complete or totalness to, to the character to love, we see the issues, or we can see more more clearly why in Saint Augustine's pursuit of God and the truth, and you know these sort of things that his his sin gets in the way because there's there's something holding back, or there's some stumbling block to his ability to love, to see clearly, to to pursue God as his ultimate and primary good. So yeah, we can see how sin blocks, and we could say the the sort of pursuit and fullness of charity, um, which has effects. And his life totally and completely. So, I guess in light of that, and with the, this question of sin, he talks about these these heads of iniquity as as sort of the the sources or yeah the the foundation of sin. And he lists three. Right, he lists the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of the spirit. So those are sort of umbrella right realities. They're heads of iniquity. They're not the, the total of them. So lust of the flesh, obviously, doing having to do with with bodily goods and and satisfactions and desires and appetites lust of the eyes you know those those things that we see and want or think or you know those those sort of things and pride of the spirit simply the antithesis to humility right we, we've talked about vainglory and and that sort of thing so the sort of puffing up of, of self he talks a lot about the puffing up of others and self so i don't know what do you what do you think about that are are the, is that exhaustive is it meant to be exhaustive is it not uh, yeah what's saint augustine doing here yeah, there's a lot of meditation in the Christian tradition about sin and where it comes from. Uh, like you'll probably have heard, dear listener, of like the capital vices or the seven deadly sins. So 
about this time, there are other people, you know, like St. Augustine who are thinking about the issue and they might, they might organize things a little differently than he does, but there's the same inspiration at the root of their pursuits. So like St. John Cashin, who lives in the late fourth, early fifth century, who is going around in Egypt and talking with some of the monks that we'll hear about in later books, like St. Anthony of the Desert. He doesn't talk to St. Anthony, I don't think, but he talks to some of his disciples or spiritual descendants. Uh, he brings monasticism back to the West, to Marseille. And when he describes the seven deadly sins, he actually lists eight, and he lists them according to the enemies of Israel. So there's this list that comes up a lot in the Old Testament, like the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Hittites and the you know all these different people. Um, and he, he lists the eighth one as Egypt, you know. So he's trying to make sense of how the sins kind of come into our life, the way in which they pose threats, the way in which they act as enemies. And then you have St. Gregory the Great, who comes after St. Augustine, who's the one who really gives us this idea of like, you know, capital sins and then like daughter vices, as it were, or, you know, kind of um, the primary virtues and then their their daughter virtues, as it were, or related virtues. So this idea of trying to articulate the moral life according to some pattern or some standard. And so St. Augustine here, where does he take his inspiration? Well, he takes it from first letter of St. John. This comes from the second chapter. And like you were saying, Father Jacob Bertrand, you know, it's this idea of trying to acknowledge how sin arises in our lives from like different inputs or from like different aspects of our humanity. And, and different spiritual authors will go about it in their own way. One way to do it is to say, you know, the, the less of the eyes corresponds to like you know, basically like sins of acquisitiveness and the less of the flesh sins of, you know, the flesh sins of unchastity. And then the pride of life corresponds to those, you know, sins of the soul, as it were, like a kind of false autonomy or false self-rule or disobedience, the more kind of black for being more, I suppose, exalted uh, in their sinful conceits. Um, so basically it's a way of describing the whole moral landscape and trying to give a certain order to it. So that way in being more cognizant, we can submit it to the healing and growing grace of God. Yeah, we've, we've, I guess the growth in the Christian life comes from being able to ask and beg God's mercy. And in order to do that, we need to recognize that we're sinners. And St. Augustine's sort of meditations and conversations on sin, it's not a way of like beating himself up or beating us up through his own sin, but of, of recognizing, you know, his weaknesses, his brokenness, humanity's weaknesses, humanity's brokenness, and being able to to ward it off through the grace of God. So yeah, he's, he, these investigations and these reflections on it are, are just for that purpose. And yes, good for us to do in our in our own lives too, you know, not to get trapped by them, but to think about it, you know, what is it that traps us? What is it that sets us from the path to God that destroys charity in our lives, these sort of things. So we're coming to the end of book three. And at the end of book three, St. Augustine recounts a dream that his mother, St. Monica, had. So we know who St. Monica is, and we know what she's about. She's about getting her, her son to convert, to become a Catholic. Um, and she spends her life praying and offering sacrifice, and as St. Augustine recounts, shedding copious and abundant tears for her son's conversion. And it's here that that she has a dream about Saint Augustine, about his his sort of wanderings from Christ. And in this dream, there's a figure that that comes to her and and says to her, "Where you are, there he will be also." And Saint Monica perhaps rightly interprets this dream of of her presence bringing Christ's presence to her son. Um, at least that's how I'm understanding what's going on here on the Saint Monica side. Saint Augustine, when Saint Monica tells him of the dream um, 
thinks that the other way that St. Monica is going to uh, be converted to this Manichaean sect, to the ways of St. Augustine. Obviously, history has told us who the true prophet or dream interpreter is. Uh, but yeah, we have this this great dream here that um, on the one hand in, inspires consolation and confidence in St. Monica's intercession and our Lord's desire for St. Augustine, but also, I guess, kind of leaves St. Augustine a little, I don't know. I don't know if he's thinking, well, that's just my mom again at it in a new way or or what. But here we have this sort of the dream bringing us to wrapping up this book. So Father Gregory, your thoughts, do you have any special insights here? Not, not especially special, but just one small thing by way of parting word. You know, you heard uh, listeners as part of her vision. She envisions herself on a kind of standard or rule or measure. And, and St. Augustine is, you know, pictured standing beside her or falling in line, as it were. And this is a perfect way to end book three because it began with this desire for wisdom, with a kind of call to wisdom. And as we have described and will continue to describe throughout the course of the reading of this book, it pertains to the wise man to order, right? And St. Augustine is going about uh, discovering a certain order for his life through Manichaeanism, through true philosophy, ultimately through his love of our Lord Jesus Christ and his reception of the true faith. And that's going to set his desires in order. And so when he finds himself on the same rule or standard, that means that he is adopting the same form of life with the same order, uh, at least in its rough sketches or at least in its its basic contours. So I think it's a, a beautiful prophecy of the order which will reign in his life as Christ gradually makes his, his presence known in St. Augustine's life and his grace felt. Well, there you have it. Book three, I was going to say in the books, but we're already, we're staying in the books. You know what I mean? We're wrapping up book three tomorrow in our next episode. We'll, we'll hit you with our bonus introductory episode for book four and then dive into book four the day following. So know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us and we will catch you next time on Catholic Classics.